Jim. Um, today we begin a two-part series, just brief series called Our Mission. And what I'm going to do is uh, tackle the, our two mission statements, winning the lost and maturing the believer. And uh, so today we're going to talk about winning the lost. Next week we'll talk about maturing the believer. And then we'll jump into a new series that will begin on Easter Sunday. You can read about that in your bulletins. Um, a couple of months ago, I got on my knees during my morning quiet time, and I was praying with the Lord, and um, I, I asked the Lord, I said, God, give me an opportunity today to share Christ with somebody. Give me an opportunity to, to tell them about Jesus, about how to have their sins forgiven, how to uh, have eternal life. And um, went on with the rest of my prayers, just didn't really think anything else about it, and went off to school that night where I teach in Atlanta, and... Um, uh, it happened to be we were talking about evangelism. The subject came up about evangelism, about sharing Christ with folks. And, um, and I said to my class, I said, you know what? I prayed this morning that I'd have an opportunity to share Christ with somebody. Uh, and I said, and that hadn't happened, but the day isn't over yet, right? This is the evening class. And so just kind of went on with things. And later that, that night, um, as I was heading down into the basement of the building where the parking uh, garage is, um, as soon as I walked out into the parking garage, I smelled cigar smoke. And I knew what that was. I had seen this many times before. There's a group of homeless guys that uh, hold up in the backside of the parking garage where they get away from the wind. And um, so I instinctually knew that that's what that was. And uh, then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit said to me, here's the answer to your prayers. Well, Lord, that wasn't exactly what I had in mind when I asked you this morning to share Christ with somebody. And so I started telling the Lord that I don't want to get stabbed tonight. I don't want somebody pandering me for money. I'm not interested in this guy. God, you could have answered that prayer earlier today. I saw a lot of people today. You could have brought somebody across my path and answered that prayer earlier. I mean, come on, God. Well, I walked on down to my car and um, put my stuff in the back of my car. And there parked next to my car was one of the other professors. He had seen me walking out of the building and thought he'd... So he knew the guys were down at the end, where, kind of where my car was parked. And so he just wanted to kind of keep an eye on me, just being friendly. And uh, so he's waiting in his truck for me to load up and, and get in my car. And so now I'm thinking to myself, Lord, you know, the whole way over to my car, I'm rattling off all my stuff. And I said, I'm like, Lord, and now I'm going to inconvenience this guy too, right? He's been sitting here waiting on me as I'm walking out to my car. And he's got to sit here and wait for me because I'm going to go slip around the corner where these guys are. Not to mention the impropriety of slipping out of visual sight to go talk to these, you know, I'm just saying, you know, it's the world we live in today. And so I'm going, what's he going to think about me going over here and talking to these folks? So I got every reason in the world, Lord, why I should not go and share Christ with these folks. Well, this is a similar situation that we run into today in the scriptures in Mark chapter 5. Um, Jesus runs into a fella who lives out on the street, probably doesn't smell too good, and, um, and he, we'll see how Jesus handles this situation. So let's take a look at this together. Mark chapter 5, if you would, as is our custom each week, to stand. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And uh, let's read the account here of Jesus and the Gerasene demoniac. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Here we go. They went across to the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart 
and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. You may be seated. All right, so let's just kind of walk into this scene together. This is the scene of Jesus who meets this crazy guy on the street, right? This guy that's up there in these tombs, up there on the hillside, who seems to have lost his mind, who seems to be having some sort of psychotic episode. And this is the account of how Jesus handled that situation. So let's take a look at this together. Verse 1, Mark chapter 5. It says, Then Jesus and his disciples went across the lake, that is, they went across the Sea of Galilee to the region of the Gerasenes. Now, I've got a map for you of the Sea of Galilee. You can take a look at it with me. Jesus has just come from Capernaum, which is up here in the northwestern tip of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is 16 miles north to south, so it's a pretty significant body of water. Um, and then the Jordan River runs into it and flows out of the bottom of it. And Jesus goes from Capernaum, <coughs> goes from Capernaum down here to Gergesa, which is a town on the eastern shore the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Look at verse 2 with me. It gives us some more of the details. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit, a demon-possessed man, came from the tombs. You say, Gordon, you're an educated man. You don't really believe in this demon stuff, do you? You don't really believe that there's this real person called Satan, and he's at work in the world, and, and uh, you don't really believe in that stuff, do you? You don't really believe that demons can possess person's physical body and can manipulate them and cause them to do things you don't really believe in that stuff do you i mean anytime that the bible's talking about this it's referring to some sort of an allegorical uh reference to evil really i mean that's really what it is well i mean that's one perspective um in fact i was talking with a friend of mine uh this past thursday night and he's in a bible study with some folks that he has a lot of trust in but when this particular passage that they were looking at came up, he said that uh, there was a rejection of the thought of demons. Uh, they said that this guy was just having a psychotic episode and that Jesus comes down and, and, and he's interacting with this guy. But really what the guy needed was medication. It wasn't that he needed the demons exercised out of him. Well, I mean, that's one perspective, but that's not the perspective that the Bible teaches. If you flipped over to Isaiah chapter 14, if you flipped over to Ezekiel chapter 28, both of those passages tell us what happened, where Satan came from, that Satan was a fallen angel, uh, that he rebelled against God, and that in his rebellion against God, other angels followed suit with, them, with him, and that those angels, those fallen angels, became what we refer to, what the scriptures refer to, as demons. In fact, the Lord Jesus here in Mark chapter 5 is speaking to these demons. The Lord Jesus himself spoke with, had conversation with Satan in Matthew chapter 4, the temptation of Christ out in the wilderness. And so um, Jesus believed in demons. He believed in Satan, that they were real. The Bible says that, Satan's and demons, that Satan and demons are real. And so whether you're uneducated or educated, I believe what the Bible says, period, I'm going to stand on the side of Jesus, period, that these are real demons that are inside of and uh, possessing this guy. Um, let me remind us, before I go on any further, that the occult is nothing to fool around with. Uh, Ouija boards and tarot cards and seances and witches and movies that depict all this sort of stuff. Friends, we're putting ourselves, uh, we're exposing ourselves to, to, we're making ourselves susceptible to those influences. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 27 says these words, Do not give the devil a foothold in your life. Don't give the devil a foothold. 
And that's precisely what we're doing when we expose ourselves to these sorts of things. This sort of stuff is nothing to play around with. It is nothing for our children to play around with, period. All right, back to the story, Mark chapter 5 and verse 3. It says, this man lived in the tombs. Now, I've got a picture for you, uh, a modern-day picture of the, uh, of the ruins of this tomb. Um, and this is a picture of right on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. I got another picture for you that shows you can see the tombs up on the hillside. And then the other picture come, is from the tombs down to the Sea of Galilee. So you can see how close the shoreline is to where these tombs are. Um, and then there's a third picture I've got for you. And that is of the ruins of a church that was built in the 300s A.D. that commemorates the site where Jesus encountered this guy that was possessed of demons. Uh, the church is in ruins today, but all of these things are, are markers um, that, that corroborate the biblical stories, archaeological evidence that corroborate the biblical story. All right, back to verse 3. It says, No one could bind him anymore, this guy, not even with a chain. So this fellow is so frothy at the mouth, he's so hopped up on demons, right? He's so supercharged by these demons that he's breaking the chains, not, he's pulling the irons off of his wrists and off of his ankles. Verse 4. For he had been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Verse 5, and constantly, day and night, among the tombs and in the hills, this guy would cry out. He'd cut himself with stones. He was like the neighborhood dog that will not stop barking. Some of y'all know, maybe you've got one of those, that just goes on and on, day in and day out, night, all through the night. And that's what this guy is. He's up there howling at the moon, night after night. The people down there in the town of Gergesa, they're going, oh, there he goes again. He's yelling at the moon again. And he's just, just lost his mind, it seems like. But he's possessed of these demons. But all of this problem that this guy has is about ready to change. Look at verse 6 with me. It says, when the demon-possessed man saw Jesus from a distance... He ran and fell on his knees in front of Jesus. So Jesus has just arrived across the Sea of Galilee at the town of Gergesa. This fellow who was up there in the tomb realizes who has landed on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And the demons, with this guy, come running down to, to meet Jesus. The man shouted, verse 7, at the top of his lungs, right? What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you evil spirit. Verse 9 says, then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, for we are many. Now, in Roman soldiers, uh, going back to the Roman days, a Roman legion was 6,000 soldiers. Now, the text is not necessarily trying to suggest, and I'm not trying to suggest that there were 6,000 demons possessing in this guy. But the point is, well, maybe there were. I don't, I'm not saying that for sure. But the point is that there was a whole bunch of demons. We're not talking about four or five here. We're talking in the thousands. And you'll see that come to light here again in a second. Um, and it's very interesting what the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke record about this particular story. They, act, they record this in their Gospels as well. In the Gospel of Luke, uh, verse eight and verse, chapter 8, verse 31, uh, says next, And then the, the demons begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them into the abyss. And then over in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 8 and verse 29 says, What do you want with us, Son of God? Have you come to torture us before the appointed time? Now, what are these demons talking about? Throwing us into the abyss, 
talking about the appointed time. What are we, what, what's going on here? What are they referring to? Well, the demons are very aware of what the Lord Jesus has been teaching, that at the end of the age that Jesus is going to do away with, he's going he's gonna to disallow uh, these demons to, to cause any more trouble um, in town. And all this goes to the book of Revelation where there's this abyss and the Satan's thrown into the abyss and Jesus locks it up and then releases Satan again. And so this is referring to uh, the end of this age when Jesus is going to take care of these demons. And so they're saying to him, hey, look, I, judging by what's going on right here, it's not ready for the appointed time. It's not ready for you to lock us up. So what do you plan on doing here, Jesus? And so they recognize that he has the authority to do that, but they're questioning um, it's not time yet. Look at verse 11. So a large herd of pigs was feeding in the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. Verse 13. He gave them permission and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. This should strike you as strange. Okay, here's Jesus, he's a Jewish guy, we're on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, we're right here where the nation of Israel is, and they are raising pigs. Everybody knows that Jewish people don't eat at Sonny's Barbecue, right? And so what are they doing raising pigs? This is one of those examples where skeptics of the scriptures say, see, 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 the Jewish people would not have been raising pigs and they'll say, hey, look, so see, the Bible is not true to the context to the, to, uh, of what happened in their day. And, uh, and so the Bible's wrong. Well, let's hold on just a second. At the time of Christ, on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, there was not, there was, uh, it wasn't populated by Jewish people, but rather it was populated by Gentiles. As a matter of fact, there were ten gen major Gentile cities on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee at this time, and this region was referred to as the Decapolis. Uh, the word, it's a compound word, deca, meaning, my daughter's not here this morning to hear this, she would translate the Latin, deca meaning ten, polis meaning cities. So it's the ten cities, the deca polis. And so that's the name of this region. I got a map for you. Check out this map, and you can see in the bottom right corner of the map where it says Decapolis. This was a Gentile, that is a non-Jewish region. And one of the cash crops for the people who lived in this region were, guess what? Pigs. They were pig farmers. And so, um, uh, so the pigs were a cash crop for these people in this Gentile city. It wasn't Jewish people raising these pigs. It was uh, Gentiles doing this. Look at verse 13. So Jesus gave the demons permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd was about 2,000 in number. I told you there was a lot of demons, right? Rushed down the steep bank and into the lake, and they were drowned. So here's these pigs. They rushed down that steep hillside that you saw earlier into the Sea of Galilee, and the pigs drowned 2,000. So they're bobbing like corks out there in the Sea of Galilee. You can imagine that the hillside is just, I mean, the, the shoreline is just covered I mean, 2,000 pigs, that's, that's a massive amount of pigs out there in the water. And they're just everywhere. I mean, you can run on top of these things like you'd run on top of logs back in the old days where they'd send them down the river. There's so many of these pigs out there. Look at verse 14. And then those who were tending the pigs. See, I told you that they were domesticated pigs. There was people out there tending them. These were not wild pigs that were just roaming around the hillside. These were pig farmers. There were people who were tending them, ran off, and reported this in the town and the countryside. So all the townspeople came out to see what had happened. Verse 15, when the townspeople got there, 
I mean, they saw their 2,000 pigs out there in the water on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, bobbing up and down. People are running out there, pulling them out, trying to slaughter them real quick so they can maybe save some of what's been lost. And it says they saw the man who was crazy, who lived up there amongst the tombs, a man that saw the man who was possessed of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind. I mean, this is the guy, people are going... We couldn't heal him. We couldn't even control him. And now here he is in his right mind, seated, sitting down. He's dressed. Seems to be something's changed. Something's going, what's going on? He used to cut himself. He used to hurt himself. He used to howl at the moon. And now here he is, calm and dressed, sitting at the feet of Jesus. And now look at the people's response. End of verse 15. End of verse 15. It says, the people were... Afraid of Jesus. They were afraid. Skip on down to verse 17. The people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Please, Jesus, please go. Please, don't stay a minute longer. Please leave. You know, it occurred to me, that's a pretty strange request. Jesus comes along, he heals this guy who's possessed of demons, and then... They ask him to go? I mean, Jesus could have very well come back to their home and healed their grandfather, healed their daughter, healed their husband who had been injured on the job, healed people who had diseases, who were hurting and dying in their community. And yet, they asked him to leave. They pleaded with him to leave. Well, I'll tell you why they didn't invite him back to their town. And the reason that they, didn't, they wanted Jesus to leave is because they didn't want to lose any more of their cash crop. That's really what's going on here. They, they, they recognized that Jesus was a threat to their local economy, and it was more important to get him gone than it was to get folks back home better. Look at verse 18. It says, as Jesus was getting back in the boat, he agrees to leave. Jesus is a gentleman, friends. You ask him to go, he'll go. You ask him to leave you alone, he'll leave you alone. And friend, if you're here this morning, and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and somebody drug you to church here this morning, somebody's been after you lately at work, or sending you notes and saying, you know, I really wish you'd uh, consider putting your faith and trust in Jesus. And you just wish that those people would leave you alone. And you've told the Lord, Lord, I wish you'd just leave me alone. Friends, Jesus is a gentleman, and he'll leave you alone. But I also want to warn you, because I love you, that if you send Jesus away, if you reject him, you will spend an eternity in hell, an eternity apart from Christ, an eternal suffering. And so my advice to you is to say to Jesus, you know, Lord, while you're still here, while I still have the chance, I want to accept what you're offering. And I hope you'll think about that. I hope you'll think about that. So, <clears throat> verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed of demons begged to go with Jesus. I mean, he wanted in the boat along with the other disciples, right? Wherever you're going, Jesus, that's where I want to go. Verse 19. But Jesus didn't let him. didn't let him get into the boat. He said to him instead, go home. 
Go home to your family. Tell everyone how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And then look at what the guy does with Jesus' command. Look at verse 20. Here's what he did. So the man went away, and he began to tell, or that is to witness, in Decapolis, in all of these ten cities, in all of this region. He went out into this region of the Decapolis and began to tell people in all of these cities, wherever he went, about the good things that God about how much Jesus had done for him, and people were amazed. Friends, the guy whom the Bible calls Legion, who was howling at the moon, became the first traveling evangelist. He became the Billy Graham of the Decapolis in Jesus' day. From a demon-possessed man to a Billy Graham of the east side. I mean, what a wonderful story. What a remarkable turnaround. What a transformation that Jesus wrought in the life of this guy. All right, well, that's the story of Jesus and this Gerasene demoniac, this fellow who is possessed by demons. And so that's as much treatment as we want to do with the text today. And so that brings us to ask the question that we ask each week, and that is, what difference does all this make to my life? You say to yourself, Gordon, I'm not a uh, pig farmer. And uh, I don't have any demons, although I wonder about the kids who live next door. But in any case, what difference does all this make to my life? Let's talk about that. If you would, look back at the picture of the city of Gergesa. Um, And you can see in the background uh, of the picture um, way up. Yeah, there we go. You can see the tombs way up there in the backdrop of that picture up on the hillside. That's where Legion was living. And where he came down to meet Christ. Friends, what I hope that this picture communicates. It communicates that Jesus didn't die on the cross for buildings. Jesus didn't die on the cross for offering plates. Jesus didn't die on the cross for our parking lots or for our attendance numbers or for sermon podcasts. Jesus died on the cross for lost people. That's why he came. That's why he came. And I forget this. I get so stinking busy with my own agenda and the things I think that I need to be doing. And I do need to be doing some of those things. But I get so caught up in that stuff, so busy, that I get sinfully focused on my own issues and my own selfish agenda that I put people second and my own agenda first. Just like the homeless guy living in the parking deck, even in the face of the clear leading of God, I said, oh, Lord, you don't really mean this. I have my reasons. I'm tired. It's the end of the day. The other professor's waiting on me. Is this safe? God, this is not a good idea. You say, well, Gordon, what did you do? Well, I put my stuff in the car, got a couple dollars that I had in my car out, and I walked around the corner, and I gave the guy some money, and I said, can I share a little bit with you? Asked him what his story was, and I asked him, can I share a little bit with you? And I told him who I was and shared Christ with him, talked to him about how he can have his sins forgiven. I mean, everything this guy owned, uh, his name was Rob, this 36-year-old African-American male, grew up in Atlanta. And Rob said, uh, he said he's lived on the street since he was 14, since he was 14. Everything he owned was in a duffel bag right there behind him. And I prayed with Rob, 
And that was just the beginning of our story. Because over the next several weeks, when I'd go in for class, Rob would always be there in the parking deck. And the next time I came, I, I, I walked around the corner. I said, hey, Rob. Nobody ever calls him by his name. And so it got his attention, and we began to talk. And over the next several weeks of me coming and sharing with him and learning his story, Rob began to open up to me. Rob began to share some of his life story with me. And uh, Rob and I become friends. And Rob said to me, he said, you must be wealthy. I said, no, <laughs> you don't understand. But standing there in front of Rob with my nice clean shirt and my car around the corner and the home I knew I was going to go home to that night, I felt extremely wealthy, extremely wealthy. And he said, I've been on the street since I was 14. He said, I've never had that. He said, I've never had a car. I've never had a place to call my home. I've never had any of that stuff. And friends, Rob wouldn't tell me that to make me feel guilty. Not at all. Rob was merely communicating in part his dream for a different kind of life. And he was communicating to me the pain of his reality. You know, if Rob meant nothing to God, then why did God send me to go pray with him? What we discover, here's my point, is that God has a heart for lost people. I mean, isn't the heart of a homeless man worth five minutes of our day? heart of a lost person. It may not be Rob in your life. It may be somebody else. I don't know who that would be. You say, well, Gordon, you're such a wonderful example. (laughs) Did you not hear anything I said? I'm a terrible example. I mean, I walked out of the building. I was firing off reasons for excuses. I don't want to go there. The guy's waiting on me. Lord, I mean, you can't possibly at the end of the day. I'm tired. I'm going to get stabbed. I I mean, I'm giving him all of the reasons why I would not want to do this. I'm a terrible example of this principle of giving up our time to go share Christ with somebody. But you know what? I know that this is the way that God wants for me to be. And so I'm trying to be the person that God wants me to be. And I'm asking the Holy Spirit to help me to slow down. And I'm asking the Holy Spirit to give me God's heart for lost people. And I'm asking the Holy Spirit to give me God's concern for lost people. I mean, Jesus Christ, he was a great example. A great example. We saw this right here in Mark chapter 5. A great example of somebody. He was never too busy for people. And he had an agenda that was way more expansive and way more serious than me. And yet he was never too busy for people. You know, as followers of Christ... My hope is that you will pray, Lord, help me to slow down, to see lost people all around me, and to be willing, when your Holy Spirit prompts, to share Christ with them. People who need somebody to show them a little bit of love. People who need somebody to throw an arm around them and share in their pain, and share in their story. To say, Lord, help me to do that. I want to be used up by you. You know, a week from today, this church, us, are going to have a wonderful opportunity to meet with folks 
who are coming here for some Easter eggs and some fun, but also wondering, you know, my life's broken. And I wonder if that church and those folks over there have anything to offer. And by how we respond next Sunday afternoon, by how we respond when maybe they show up here on Easter Sunday to visit with us, if we're too busy talking to the folks around us, if we're too busy getting our Easter dresses on, to talk to the person sitting next to us or behind us, to greet them warmly, it may be the last chance we have to reach those people for Christ. Let me sum up today's message. Above everything else, God has a heart for lost people. And as his followers, he wants you and me to have this very same value system, both in our personal lives and in our church family. And that's the point. And in just a few moments, we're going to have, we're going to pass the plate and you'll receive the elements of communion. This is a time for us to examine our hearts before the Lord. It's also a time for us, we're designating it this morning, to bring lost people before God. To lift up those in our life that the Holy Spirit has prompted us to be praying for, to reach out to, to share Christ with. To lift those people up before the Lord. You may want to kneel right where you're seated. And you're welcome to do that. But you take advantage of this time of quiet meditation with the Lord. And lift before him those people in your life, a co-worker, a sister, a son who's rebellious. You take the time to lift them up before the Lord. Let's pray together. God, we ask that you would forgive us for being too busy. There's nothing going on in our world that wouldn't allow us to stop for just five minutes to talk with someone about the greatest news the world has ever heard. Lord, help us to be the people like you want us to be. We're trying. We don't always get it right. Lord, help us to do our best, though. And God, as we bring before you these people this morning whom you have placed in our path, the robs of our life, Lord, we ask that you'd hear our prayer. We don't want them to spend an eternity apart from you. Lord, we just ask that you would hear our prayer this morning, that you would convict hearts. We can't save anybody. Only you can do that. That you'd convict hearts, that you'd lead these people toward a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Convict them of their sin. Let them know, Lord, that only you can fix it. And may they find their way into your arms. We pray these things in Christ's name.